Hello, thanks for joining me and welcome to Combining Therapies to Enhance Wound Healing Outcomes, Leveraging Collagen with Oxidized Regenerated Cellulose, ORC, and Silver and Negative Pressure Wound Therapy. I'd like to introduce our faculty. Um, my name is Dot Weir. I'm a wound nurse out of Saratoga Springs, New York. I practice at the Saratoga Hospital Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine. I am joined today by Dr. Michael Devine, uh, who is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at uh, Brazo Arrowhead Hospital and Wound Clinic in Glendale, Arizona. And it's our pleasure to be with you and present to you today. These are our disclosures. Uh, this is a, a pro some program information is provided by uh, HMP Education, which is an HMP global company and supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division. Now, these are our learning objectives. We're going to look at the clinical impact of collagen with oxidized regenerated cellulose and silver in the wound environment and then explain why the, what the clinical significance of negative pressure wound therapy is, and then look to see uh, where we use both of these and then where we can use the two combined. So let's get started. These are some facts that you see a lot of times people open up presentations with information like this, but I think it's particularly impactful when we're talking about therapies and things that we can do to help wounds get healed faster. A lot of people have open and chronic wounds. Some are infected, some aren't. But the costs are skyrocketing and Medicare costs, and this comes from data in 2019. Uh, Medicare costs for patients with both acute and chronic wounds ranged from anywhere from a low of 28.1 billion to 96.8 billion. The highest expenses, uh, surprisingly a little bit to me, were surgical wounds, but also they were followed by a close second with diabetic foot wounds. There was a higher rate uh, cost associated with outpatient care, but that makes sense because I work in outpatient care and we, uh, you know, we see people for the longer period of time. The annual wound care market is expected to reach uh, upwards. It could be up to 22 billion just by next year. And if you think about the reason for these rising healthcare costs, it sort of makes sense. We have an older population. We have learned more about recognizing what it could be causing a hard to heal wound, especially when bacteria and biofilms. And then we have people you know, with lots more comorbid conditions such as diabetes, obesity. And so we can, we can keep them um, as healthy as we can can, but many times wounds will accompany that. When we look at the kind of wounds that we see most commonly as my, as an outpatient person of 20 something years, I can tell you that the most common wound that we see is on the lower extremity, but also the venous leg ulcer followed closely by the diabetic foot ulcers. Venous leg ulcers represent 60 to 80% of all lower extremity uh, ulcerations. Um, it takes a long time to heal. Only 60% of them are actually closed by 12 weeks. And many of them recur in as little as two or three weeks. A lot of that has to do with we, us needing to be better educators in terms of the vulnerability of that recurrence and uh, help to get them into long-lasting compression. But I think one of the... Uh, pieces of data that always impacts me the most is how many work days are lost every single year. It's a low of 2 million you'll find in the literature and a high of 4.6 million work days lost every year, either because of the treatment, because of the drainage, because of the inability to wear shoes with, with their compression, a variety of different reasons that could happen. 
Of course, diabetic foot ulcers in our practice tends to follow as a close second. Uh, about 15 to 25% of the folks who have diabetes will have a, a, a diabetic foot ulcer. And of course, there's a high risk of death, a high risk of amputation, and certainly a high cost, as we talked about in the previous slide. And then last, but certainly not least, and this of course isn't all wounds, but pressure injuries. Another big problem in our area, two and a half million patients in the US every year, and the global cost of uh, products is supposed to be uh, astronomical just for pressure ulcers, uh, pressure injuries, four and a half billion by, by next year. Uh, and then it, what isn't ever accounted for, and this is the cost of the litigation that many times accompanies uh, pressure injuries. So uh, again, a big impact and a lasting problem. So, you know, if you've done wound care for a while, you've been educated on the phases of wound healing, and we talk about them a lot. And so it's, it, they're overlapping phases that have certain cells that are involved, certain biochemical mediated, chemical mediators that are involved in order to get damaged tissue to ultimately a healed tissue or a healed wound. But what we see in chronic wound care, and this is how we expect to heal. This is how people heal. But in our, in our world, in the world of chronic wound healing, something happens to derail those events. And science has taught us so much over the years in terms of what it could be that's derailing these events. Uh, but, but there are some specific things that we can address and do something about. We know there are a lot of factors that impact wound healing, and I'm not gonna read all of these that are on this slide. And we've talked about uh, already about the number of people, people are, are living longer, they have more comorbid conditions. There are some lifestyle choices that could come into play, but when you consider all of these things together, uh, there are a lot of ways that those wounds can derail. And so it's no surprise when you look at all these things that are listed on this slide that, uh, that anybody heals at all actually. Okay, let's take a closer look at what can happen down at the wound bed, at the cellular level. I'm sure you're all familiar with matrix metalloproteinases. Uh, most often we call them proteases. Proteinases is really more the European way of saying that. But these are a family of protein degrading enzymes. They're synthesized and secreted by multiple types of cells, as you can see listed here. And they're not bad. They're, so they're a necessary part of wound repair because they're responsible for cell migration. So if you just look at my little picture over here, uh, you see these keratinocytes, they're running along the basement membrane. When they've been signaled to move, then they have to produce a, a, an MMP or a matrix metalloprotease to cleave them off, cleave the desmosomes and the hemidesmosomes that are holding them in place in order to be able to migrate. Um, by the same token, the fibroblasts that are down in the tissues, if they need to migrate, if they've been signaled to move, they have to produce an MMP in order to basically clear the way for them to move. And so they are an important part of wound repair and cell movement but uh, they are turned on to do a certain thing and they're produced to do a certain thing. And then they're stopped by something called a tissue inhibitor of a metalloproteasis. So it's a nicely balanced system. An overreproduction can occur though in response to bacteria, a pH imbalance that causes destruction that we don't intend. So when we look at unfolding chronic wound pathology, we know that there's, there's a problem, there's a wound, but we also have potentially a repetitive tissue injury, ischemia, uh, bio burden that's elevated, both planktonic as well as biofilm. 
As a result of this, we now are stuck in a chronically inflamed state. So you have prolonged elevated inflammation, you have high levels of neutrophils, high levels of macrophages, uh, high levels of activated mast cells. And this creates this inflammatory um, response where uh, inflammatory cytokines such as TNF and the interleukins are being produced. As a result of that, now we have a further imbalance. We have an imbalance of the proteases and their inhibitors. So we're having more and more proteases cranked out, but we have less inhibitors to balance them out. And so we have an elevated proteases of uh, the matrix metalloproteases, such as the collagenases, the gelatinases, as well as neutrophil elastase. As well, as I've mentioned, there's decreases in the inhibitors and an increase in reactive oxygen species. So now we have a very hostile wound environment, but many times it will look pretty much the same. When we have this uh, more destructive environment, now we're going to have the uh, off-target destruction of many essential proteins. Remember, most of the most of the substances in an open wound are protein. So we're going to have destruction of growth factors as well as their receptor sites on the cell walls. Uh, the extracellular matrix is going to be destroyed. Uh, we're going to have decreases in our cell proliferation and migration as a result of the signaling is now going to be off balance. And what the end result is, is a acute wound now becoming a chronic wound. And this can happen subtly and without real obvious visual changes many times as we're taking care of these wounds. So now let's talk about how we can impact this. First talking about collagen with oxidized regenerated cellulose and silver. So let's first talk about collagen wound dressings. You know, collagen, as you know, is a biologically derived material. Uh, all mammalian collagen uh, is the same. Um, the source can vary on the collagen dressings that we use. It can come from cows, from sheep, from pigs, you know, from a variety of different uh, animals. And it's the basic structural protein of our body. It is bioresorbable or biodegradable, meaning it's going to break down as it sits on the open wound. And the important thing about collagen dressings is they're not related to exudate management, like we may choose most of our dressings. The role that collagen can play is to help balance out some of that degradation. It helps to guide tissue ingrowth. It provides a scaffolding that cells are, are very attracted to and can migrate into and attach to. It increases the cellular proliferation at the wound site. And most importantly, it can help to modulate the excess matrix metalloproteases by acting as a sacrificial substrate. So what do I mean by that? When we put collagen directly onto the surface of a wound, uh, the, in a chronic wound, uh, it's going to help with signaling of fibroblast recruitment because that's not occurring and now the collagen has been degrading so rapidly. The collagen that's degraded is triggered by all those excess matrix metalloproteases. And so if you have an abundance of collagen, you can actually minimize or offset those unfavorable uh, effects of the MMPs. The MMPs are now going to preferentially go to the topically applied collagen and leave the collagen, excuse me, leave the protein structures in the wound alone. Uh, so it helps to reduce all that proteolytic activity on the surface of the wound. Another thing that, um, collagen can do is it can bind to matrix, it can bind, excuse me, to growth factors. And then as it biodegrades, it, it releases the growth factors into the wound where the MMPs that are bounded to that collagen are pretty much always bound. Okay. So now let's talk about oxidized regenerated cellulose or ORC. 
As you know, cellulose is a major component of all plants. Once it's oxidized, ORC is, ORC is completely bioresorbable and readily degrades through fluid absorption and, and subsequently it gels. In vitro studies of ORC have found that it degrades to glucose and glucuronic acid, which lowers the pH. And that's really important. We're finding more and more out about lower pH. Lower pH is not going to support bacterial growth as well. A lower pH, when we uh, do use antimicrobial dressings, they tend to perform better uh, in, in a lower pH, a more acidic pH. So uh, it helps to reduce the pH. Uh, it's been found to have bacteriostatic properties, that it stimulated cell migration and growth. It helped to reduce protease activity levels, specifically elastase, and then also scavenged free radicals and bound up excess metal ions. So let's look at a couple of studies. In one study uh, in a diabetic foot group, they looked at 39 patients and they found that, that when they looked at the 39 patients and uh, which ones reached 50% reduction in surface area versus the control, they found almost 80%, 79% had, um, had achieved that 50% reduction by week four uh, as compared to the control. In that same study, and they looked out to week 12, they looked at the uh, infection rates and they found that 31% of the uh, patients in the control group did, did develop an infection in their diabetic foot ulcer and no patients in the um, ORC collagen did develop an infection. As we look at another study, and Brita Cullen was the author on this, and she's done probably more work in ORC collagen than anyone. But they looked at early initiation of collagen with ORC and silver and looked at the time to complete healing. What they did find is that as wounds got older, the chances of wound healing, and this probably makes sense, but as the wound that became more uh, aged, they found that the uh, wound healing and the improvement did decrease. So they looked at 56 venous leg ulcers and they looked at a 12 week period and uh, all wounds uh, they looked at 63% were closed in that 12 week period. But you'll see that the younger the wound, so those that were less than six months and less than a year had a higher percentage of healing than those that had been present for a longer period of time. And so it just showed that wound age significantly affected the overall effectiveness of the therapy the younger the wound, the better chance of the success. Now, I'd like to share with you a few cases, starting out with uh, ORC, collagen with ORC. This was a 55-year-old man who was a steroid-dependent asthmatic. He had been in a motorcycle. Well, he hadn't been in a motorcycle accident. He was putting a motorcycle up on a ramp, and the motorcycle fell. And he ended up with an avulsive injury to his right over his left anterior tip. He had a culture positive MRSA. He had no clinical signs and symptoms of infection. And so this post-debridement, we started him on negative pressure wound therapy. Now he had some challenges with the drape, as you can see in the peri wound skin, he has some uh, blistering. And so he requested to have the negative pressure discontinued. So we discontinued it and we started him on ORC and, uh, with silver collagen with ORC and silver uh, after we did an ultrasonic debridement. And on this particular, the first visit, we uh, actually overlapped and covered up those blistered areas. And then he was going to change it in between his visits to us. 
So one week later, this is what you'll find when you remove the dressing and change the dressings with ORC, collagen with ORC and silver, is that the dressing is going to biodegrade. And one of the things that we have noticed in our practice is that the, the um, more residual dressing that you see with each dressing change is probably an indicator that you're lowering your matrix metalloproteases because the dressing is biodegrading more slowly. And so this is that same day on the right-hand side you see after we got the wound clean. Then four weeks later, you can see this is pre-edge debridement and this is post-edge debridement. It's getting very small. And two weeks later, it was pretty much closed. This is a gentleman who is 42 years old. He was a landscape worker and got hurt on the job. He had really no significant past medical history. We got him to breed it initially and then started him with negative pressure wound therapy until as you can see on the right-hand side, he began to, he completely granulated in. And then we began to use just a foam dressing. So what we started to notice is that it was progressing nicely until it stopped. And this is so important for us to watch these wound trajectories to make sure that week after week, we are seeing, continuing to see progress. But what we were finding is that the edges stopped migrating in. And uh, many times what we'll also see with this is thickens more hyperkeratotic edges. So the epithelium would appear to migrate, but it wouldn't adhere to the wound bed. So we knew something was wrong with the wound bed. And so we began treatment with collagen uh, with ORC and silver. And, eight, and this is just a close-up. You can see the edges are there, but that's not just from the debridement. They just weren't attaching. And so then you can see in 18 days, he did turn around. He began to epithelialize and the wound closed. Lastly, let's talk about negative pressure wound therapy briefly. I know you're all familiar with negative pressure wound therapy, but we see, uh, and we use it on a lot of wounds, but the two mechanisms of action that we count on with negative pressure wound therapy is macro strain, meaning we're pulling the wound edges together. It's helped, the suction is helping to remove infectious material uh, from the surface of the wound, as well as reduce edema in the wound so that we can have better perfusion. Uh, on, the mi on the cellular level, we get microstrain where it, uh, the struts of the foam will stretch the cells, it, it stimulates cellular activity, and uh, that micro deformation inc increases the perfusion also. And edema reduction is so critically important because when you have a lot of fluid in your tissues, in the patient's tissues, uh, when we have normal, normal levels of fluid, you can see this, the capillaries are closer together. So the distance that oxygen has to diffuse is normal, is less. When you have a lot of fluid in the tissues, it spreads out those capillaries. So the distance that oxygen has to perfuse is increased. So it, that, that the, ox the tissues aren't as well perfused. So reducing that peri-wound edema with negative pressure wound therapy uh, helps to reduce that distance diffusion. Now let's look at a few more cases. This was a patient that came to us in up in upstate New York. She had just moved to the area. Uh, she was actually had MS and she was confined to a wheelchair, but she was amazing in what she could do from that wheelchair. But she had dropped a box while she was packing up her previous home onto her leg in the corner of the box. Did an, had, uh, she uh, incurred an avulsive injury and she just covered it with some gauze while she moved. So she uh, did have neuropathy. She was not diabetic, but she uh, didn't have a lot of feeling in her feet, legs. So she really didn't realize how badly she had injured her leg. She's not on any particular medications that would affect her wound 
wound healing, she was very well uh, nourished and had adequate pulses. And again, like I mentioned, the wound was not painful for her. So this is her first visit over here on day one. You can see the wound is seven squared centimeters. And um, there was about three and a half centimeters of undermining uh, in the periphery. We uh, started her on a gelling fiber and a silicone uh, bordered gauze and a three layer wrap at that point, because she definitely had dependent edema. So by day four, she's tolerating this wrap well. Uh, she's the undermining's down already. Um, and then she, uh, we now, um, on day 11, we started her on a non-powered negative pressure, mechanically powered negative pressure wind therapy, and changed her over to a two-layer wrap. By day 14, uh, it's down to six square centimeters. Her undermining is rapidly filling in now with the negative pressure. Uh, by day 17, she's only got a half a centimeter. You can see by day 22, it's almost completely filled in. Um, by day 36, the undermining is resolved. And uh, on day 49, we got to, we uh, were uh, discontinued the negative pressure, continued with the two-layer uh, compression and collagen. And then by nine weeks, she was completely closed and we were able to transition her over to a compression garment. And then the last case that I want to share with you is a patient that we uh, had in our clinic that was 83 years old. She had fallen down and uh, she had type two diabetes. You can see the rest of her, uh, her comorbid conditions. And these were her, this was her wound um, pre and post debridement on her first visit. So we initially treated her with topical enzymatic ointment and some pain management. We uh, started a two layer wrap on her, um, but she was felt to have some residual hematoma. So we did do some imaging. Uh, the imaging was negative and her wound just wasn't looking right. It was a little bit boggy around. Uh, there was some pocketing at the edges. So uh, it was more than we could do as far as uh, what we could debride in the clinic. So we um, consulted her to surgery, uh, packed her with some iodoform gauze while we're waiting for the surgery. And then on the right-hand side, you can see uh, her wound after the surgery was complete. They did evacuate more hematoma. At this point, we did uh, order negative pressure, continued with the packing until the negative pressure arrived. So now uh, you can see on day 44, her wound was completely evacuated, but now that we have the space identified, we had a one and a half centimeters of undermining. And so what we did was we filled that undermined edges with collagen with ORC and silver and, and started, the, um, started the negative pressure on top of that. So one week after the negative pressure uh, on top of the collagen uh, was started, her, her undermining was minimal. Uh, we continued the same treatment. At two weeks later, we were able to, excuse me, on day 80, we had stopped negative pressure about two weeks prior to that, continued with the collagen with ORC and silver until the wound was completely closed. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm now happy to turn it over to Dr. Michael Devane. Hello everyone, and, and Dot, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. We always ex appreciate your experience with your wound knowledge and uh, your expertise, and so I appreciate your work. Um, but again, my name is Michael Devine. Uh, I come out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona area, and I am a plastic surgeon who also does wound care. And so I'm privileged to be able to share with you some of my experiences with combining collagen with oxidized regenerated cellulose, i.e. ORC, with silver dressings and negative pressure wound therapy.
So I'm going to share some cases. I know Dot went over the science and some of the uh, experiences that, that we've all had with negative pressure therapy, as well as with um, collagen with uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose and silver. But I want to share some surgical cases and how I utilize uh, both of these uh, wound therapies in my surgical practice. So this first patient is one of a 70-year-old uh, gentleman uh, who uh, presented with a large sacral wound um, that had had previous uh, flap uh, procedures. Um, he had a past medical history, significant for, of course, paraplegia, also had multiple sclerosis and hypertension. Uh, he was receiving uh, back therapy for wound bed preparation as he had had a failed uh, flap. And with that, what we found postoperatively that he really was a very poor candidate for additional surgery. So we elected to treat him non-operatively utilizing wound therapies. So this is what the wound looked like. This is uh, after the patient, again, it had a failed flap surgery on the sacrum, uh, followed by wound bed preparation with negative pressure wound therapy. You can see um, on the slide, we have basically a large wound that is relatively superficial with regard to depth. However, um, still with some depth noted around the periphery and, and, I, and obviously um, the large size of the wound. So rather than just continuing with negative pressure wound therapy, we elected to proceed with the addition of uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver, um, again, to try to enhance the um, and expedite healing, but also too, because of this hyperinflammatory response that we see with wounds that have been open for a while, even when they've been surgically closed, once they fail, they can still have that hyperinflammatory response. So after 72 hours of negative pressure therapy with um, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver, you can see we have some wound improvement. You can see that the wound edges, particularly notable in the more inferior portion of the wound is uh, now even more superficial with this evidence of this um, hyperemic um, epithelial border, which we know is a, is a signal that uh, things are starting to heal. Again, this is utilizing uh, the negative pressure therapy with uh, the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver. And again, just looking at this as a close-up, you can see this nice healthy wound bed. Again, no undermining. Previously, you could see where on this inferior portion of the wound, there was a little bit of undermining, which has now disappeared. Uh, again, the oxidized regenerated cellulose was, with silver was continued along with negative pressure therapy. And after one week, again, we have even uh, better um, uh, hyperemic borders, again, signaling uh, wound healing and wound progression. Here's another case I wanna share. And this is a case of a 48 year old gentleman uh, with a diabetic foot ulcer. Um, this patient had had previous surgery, um, ended up with a metatarsal amputation uh, with a uh, secondary uh, osteo uh, that needed further debridement and wound care. He was being followed at our wound clinic by one of our podiatrists and as many of the clinics as ours do, do we do multi-specialty care. And many times when that patient may need surgical intervention, to, uh, perhaps such as a skin graft, then I get consulted for reconstructive options. Um, of note, again, this patient is a smoker. He is diabetic with a neuropathic uh, foot. And uh, he was very uh, difficult with regard to um, adherence. And so his care plan was always changed because of his inability to, to offload that foot. 
But at the time I met him, he was already again being treated by my podiatrist in the wound clinic, who's a wonderful podiatrist and does extremely good work. Um, but he was receiving uh, wound therapy with uh, negative pressure wound therapy. Um, and at the time, he uh, really wanted to have a split thickness skin graft to expedite healing. Um, and this, this is why I was consulted. So when I met this gentleman, again, he was already receiving negative pressure wound therapy. Uh, this is the wound at the heel where you can see he still had a little bit of necrotic debris. Um, he underwent excisional debridement in the office uh, and a negative pressure therapy was continued with um, VAC therapy. After an additional week of wound bed preparation, uh, he underwent um, a and excisional debris in the office and underneath this necrotic debris was actually a fairly healthy wound bed. And at the time, again, his, his main concern was to expedite healing as he was trying to go back to work. So at this point, we actually added the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver um, to allow for expediating his healing process to try to get him back to work more quickly with a split thickness skin graft. So after an additional week of therapy, which included addressing change at home by the home health nurses, uh, again, continued with uh, negative pressure wound therapy with the addition of oxidized regenerated cellulose to try to expedite his healing. You can see after an additional seven days, uh, we have a wound that is now smaller, uh, reduced in depth, as well as the uh, surface uh, size is now it's a little bit closer to the skin margin, which is much more amenable to the thickness skin grafting. So again, uh, he's taken to the operating room for a split thickness skin graft. The donor site is the, uh, the lateral thigh, a relatively small graft. Now, my concern with this gentleman, again, he had some issues with uh, patient adherence in the past. And because of the location of this on the heel, my concern was going to be that if he continued to walk on this foot, that he would lose the split thickness skin graft. So while we perform the split thickness skin graft, relatively small donor site, you can see by the interstices that the uh, skin graft was meshed. This was meshed in a one and a half to one fashion. And these little particulate uh, fibers that you're seeing is that of a placental allograft that I often use, particularly in those wounds that are uh, chronic in nature and or difficult to heal and or have a high risk of postoperative complications. So this placental allograft is placed uh, onto the split thickness skin graft. Uh, and then in addition, a non-adherent layer is placed with a plan for uh, negative pressure therapy postoperatively. Now, what I did with this patient that was a little bit unique is that I also added um, additional oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver uh, to assist with that wound bed preparation. My concern here, again, I have a patient who's not adherent. We still have a chronic wound with a um, hyperinflammatory response. And the addition of this uh, um, uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver can also help with antimicrobial control, um, but additionally that hyperinflammatory response. So here we have the oxidized regenerated cellulose being placed along with the non-adherent dressing onto the split thickness skin graft, and then negative pressure wound therapy is continued again for a seven day period. 
Of note, uh, postoperatively, um, he was initially treated uh, with offloading with an offloading shoe. Um, however, he refused to use that shoe. And at one week, he had uh, small areas of epidermal loss, but ultimately um, lost uh, most of that split, th split thickness skin graft. As you can see at four weeks, um, he now has a wound that is smaller in size and more superficial. However, most of that skin graft is gone. The only thing that is remaining are these couple of staples you see on the superior portion of the slide, uh, which again is indicating where that split thickness uh, graft had been placed. So again, um, not ideal that he lost the split thickness skin graft, uh, but I think that the use of the um, oxidized regenerated cellulose to get to the point that we could proceed with split thickness skin grafting, again, is a testimonial to wound bed preparation, not only on those wounds that we're utilizing for um, chronic wounds to allow secondary healing, but I would say even in wound bed preparation for those wounds that we are considering surgical intervention. In this case, a surgical intervention essentially failed because the uh, split thickness skin graft was lost. However, other than the small donor site of the split thickness skin graft, um, we still have a wound that um, is improved with regard to appearance, reduction in size and depth um, that can then be treated um, non-operatively as an outpatient for continued wound progression. And this, this next case, I, I wanna spend a little bit more time on. It's a very complicated uh, case of a gentleman uh, with multiple pressure ulcers. Uh, this patient uh, was, had been followed in the wound clinic for multiple pressure ulcers, including stage four ulcers, which were very difficult to allow for progression with outpatient therapy. He was ultimately referred to me for um, surgical intervention. However, even during the time that he was to see me in clinic, he uh, unfortunately ended up in the emergency room and then hospitalized uh, for worsening wounds uh, with gross evidence of necrotic debris. As noted here, um, patient uh, was initially treated and seen uh, again uh, in the hospital uh, with significant wounds. Um, what you're looking at here is a patient on his uh, side, his right side, this is his left hip, if you will, uh, with exposed deep soft tissue to include bone. Now, when he was first admitted to the hospital, the wound care team uh, which we utilize, which is excellent uh, in terms of their, um, their nursing and expertise. Uh, but this patient was initially treated with negative pressure wound therapy with installation. You can see here the reticulated open foam, um, the circular motion, uh, circular uh, uh, soft tissue um, areas, which is very consistent with that special reticulated open foam to try to reduce the necrotic uh, debris or loosen that necrotic debris as we're awaiting surgical intervention. Uh, but additionally, on his right hip, he also had a large uh, pressure ulcer, this one with not as much necrotic debris, but certainly significant in that there was tunneling superiorly and deep uh, tissue and full thickness. On his right side, he had a left, I'm sorry, right, had a right ischial ulcer, which again, you can see was already treated or pre-treated with negative pressure wound therapy with installation and again, reticulated open foam to help uh, loosen the necrotic debris. 
So uh, when I uh, visited with the patient, at this point, he was doing a little bit better. We had acute um, uh, acutely on IV antibiotic therapy, the hospitalist infectious disease team were all involved with his care. And at this time, it, we thought it was safe to take him for surgical uh, debridement uh, with anticipation of the need for flap surgeries. So a patient was taken to the operating room. And as you can see, he is now in the prone position. This is a better look of that right ischial ulcer. Again, this is after negative pressure wound therapy for approximately 72 hours. Uh, you can see the reticulated open foam circular um, uh, soft tissue uh, imprints, uh, which again is indicative of that reticulated open foam. On his left side, you can see that a hip, which had some uh, residual necrotic debris, but significantly improved uh, upon uh, uh, after a completion of 72 hours of the negative pressure therapy uh, with the um, installation and reticulated open foam. Uh, on the hip, as mentioned previously, again, not as much necrotic debris, but some undermining and, and obviously was in need of surgical intervention and, and perhaps closure. So because of the extent of these ulcers, the initial procedures were performed with a planned stage technique. And what I mean by that is that initially, all of this chronic wound is not only debrided, but completely excised. So we have excision of the ulcer of the right uh, ischium, uh, followed by a partial ostectomy, which is bone removal um, of that bone that had been exposed over a period of time. On the left hip, similarly, all of that tissue not only was debrided, but complete excision of the wound margin with partial bone removal or partial ostectomy to now allow for a healthy wound bed in preparation for flap closure. Now, the reason that this was performed as a stage technique rather than proceeding with flap uh, surgery uh, was simply to reduce that bacterial burden as well as to enhance our uh, ultimate result is uh, when doing multiple flaps at one time, you have a higher risk of postoperative complications. So again, as mentioned, this was performed as a stage technique. So the uh, negative pressure of wound therapy was continued with installation. At this point, because most of the necrotic debris had been removed, we proceeded now with the classic installation therapy uh, foam uh, to simply allow for irrigation and reduction of that bacterial burden. So uh, postoperatively, uh, again, he was treated with negative pressure wound therapy and now awaiting uh, definitive management with flap closure. At day seven, which is again an additional 72 hours after the last staged excision and ostectomy, I then uh, brought him back to the operating room for a flap uh, surgery. This is now the left hip. You can see the wound is clean. What you're looking at at that center portion on that right uh, slide is the exposed bone. Now on the right uh, ischial area, similarly, no necrotic debris is present, exposed bone is noted. And again, the concern with that exposed bone is the concern and risk for a postoperative complication to include a dehiscence and or recurrent pressure injury, which we are again looking at exposed bone. So at this time on the right ischial ulcer, I am now proceeding with flap mobilization. Um, this is now taken from the posterior lateral thigh. 
Um, you can see that he is a thin gentleman with, without a lot of additional soft tissue. Um, however, we're utilizing the tissue in a, in a fasciocutaneous plane um, for mobilization from that posterior lateral thigh. However, the area of the exposed hamstring muscle right um, uh, distal to where the bone is exposed is typically utilized to, to allow for uh, better coverage over the bony surface. Here is a close-up of that, again, looking at the bone, the uh, flap mobilization of the posterior lateral thigh. Uh, now this bone that is exposed, uh, one of the things, again, I mentioned about the risk of post-operative uh, uh, infection and or uh, residual bacterial burden of the bone. And one of the things that I like to utilize is a uh, placental uh, mini membrane matrix. Uh, this placental allograft then is placed directly over the exposed bone uh, to not only enhance the cellular proliferation and healing, but also the um, antimicrobial control and perhaps reduce that uh, residual bioburden if present because of the previous exposed bone. So uh, in addition to the use of the placental allograft over the exposed bone, when I have patients such as this who have bone exposed with very thin surrounding tissue, once again, my concern is for additional uh, either pressure injury, recurrent pressure injury, and or postoperative dehiscence that leads to a wound with potential bone exposure. So to try to anticipate that potential problem, uh, what I'm showing here, again, the placental allograft being placed, and then that, that's then followed by the use of a reticular dermal matrix. So what this reticular dermal matrix is uh, doing is being inset to allow for additional soft tissue coverage over the bone as the reticular dermal matrix will then serve as a scaffolding for additional soft tissue growth. So uh, what I'm doing with the forceps is simply insetting the dermal matrix. You can see it's meshed in a three to one fashion. It allows for expansion of the graft. So not only is it um, covering the exposed bone, uh, but also any of that deep soft tissue that is also a concern because of the thinness of the tissue um, in case of an additional pressure injury and or post-operative uh, wound dehiscence. On the uh, contralateral uh, left hip, again, this wound, large wound with exposed bone. Similarly, a very large flap is utilized um, uh, and mobilized from the posterior lateral thigh for coverage. What you're looking at on the right slide is an additional reticular dermal matrix that has been placed, similarly as shown on the right ischium. And then the two white structures are simply the drains that are in place because of the large uh, area of undermining for the flap. Of note, once again, the uh, reticular dermal matrix here um, has been inset um, uh, following the placement of placental allograft over the exposed bone. The inset is performed and then the uh, soft tissue um, is then uh, covered with the uh, flap that was mobilized from the posterior lateral thigh. So upon closure, again, you can see here and get a good appreciation as he is in a prone position. And just to orient, again, this is his lower back, um, perineal area and scrotum, and then the areas that were closed. So this was the left hip 
large um, stage four pressure ulcer, again, utilizing the posterior lateral thigh for closure of the left hip, and then the large uh, right ischial ulcer similarly uh, was closed with flat mobilization from the posterior lateral thigh uh, to allow for a tension-free closure. Um, more difficult to see from this vantage point, but uh, he also had a right hip ulcer um, that was uh, able to be uh, really primarily closed um, simply with uh, sutures and direct closure, a flap did not need to be mobilized as that um, uh, right hip also was rel relatively healthy. Again, incisional management is utilized here um, to support the surgical incisions. And uh, just a couple of words on incisional management. Um, one of the reasons it's so important, particularly with flap surgery for pressure ulceration, is that when these patients even going on to an offloading uh, mattress or offloading surface, there is always concern about shear of the flaps. And even as mentioned, the closure was performed with no tension along these incisions. If there were a shear factor that could then pull these incisions apart, and we would still end up with a, um, a wound or incisional dehiscence. So the incisional management dressing for me is very important, particularly for flap surgery, particularly in pressure ulcer patients. So unfortunately, as mentioned, again, high risk of failure, high risk of shear and uh, post-operative uh, incisional dehiscence, which is exactly, is exactly what occurred in this gentleman. So this is a picture at six weeks, patient is um, in a lateral uh, decubitus position. This is this left hip ulceration that unfortunately um, resulted in a incisional dehiscence. Of note, there's always concern that perhaps the incisional management dressing failed, and this was the cause of this, and that's not the case. The, the incisional management dressing does whatever uh, we allow it to do, um, but it's not a failure. But unfortunately, sometimes even with the incisional management dressings, even with the flaps under no tension, there is still a very high risk of surgical failure as these patients are being moved from care facility to, to the bed, to the hospital, and vice versa. And so unfortunately, in this uh, very thin, frail gentleman who had a high risk of uh, surgical uh, postoperative dehiscence, that is exactly what resulted. Um, so with that, when I saw him back now outpatient in the clinic, while sometimes it is an option to return these patients for additional surgical closure and re-advance this flap, sometimes the best option is not to proceed with more surgery. And in this case, knowing that we have additional wound therapy options, such as the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver, um, that's what we opted to do. So initially the patient was seen back and started on negative pressure wound therapy to assist with wound bed preparation. You can see the areas where there's some undermining of the flap where this was ori originally raised uh, to an inset more proximally. So this was still undermined and tunneled um, and obviously now we have a clean wound bed. So this was treated again with oxidized regenerated cellulose to simply expedite healing. As in this case, I elected to um, hold off on any additional surgical intervention on this patient um, who had already failed surgery. And also at this point, um, would pre uh, preferred no additional surgery as he was now in his home setting and not at a care facility. 
So as mentioned, the combination, and, and Dot did a wonderful job explaining the science of oxidized regenerated cellulose, as well as negative pressure wound therapy. Um, but now with the new indication to be able to utilize both, I think this really gives us some um, very good options, uh, particularly in post-operative patients who are not good candidates for more surgery. So as mentioned, the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose is placed in then a non-adherent layer, similar to what I showed on a um, either a slit thickness skin graft or perhaps the reticular dermal matrix, that not inherent layer is placed, followed by the foam for the negative pressure dressing. Uh, this is the dressing in place with some bridging. Again, this is performed as an outpatient and patient at this point is treated only on, as an outpatient being seen back in the clinic weekly, as well as with home care visits. So now after an additional week of therapy, uh, you can see the, uh, the um, reduction of wound size. You start to get a sense that this area of undermining is now also being reduced. Um, and, and most importantly, the, the wound size is also being reduced. Um, so again, additional oxidized regenerated cellulose is being placed. Of note, this design is a is a Devine special as I like to cut this in a, almost a cinnamon roll type fashion as I feel like we can get a little bit more surface area out of that oxidized regenerated cellulose so that it can um, allow for better um, uh, uh, distribution throughout the wound bed. Again, patient is continued uh, not only with the oxidized regenerated cellulose, but also with negative pressure wound therapy. Of note, again, care is taken here by my wound team to, um, to assure that there is adequate um, uh, protection of the, the wound, peri-wound margin, as this patient, again, with surgical, having had previous surgical flaps, that tissue can be very tenuous. And so bridging away from the wound bed when possible is another advantage um, to be thinking about during uh, your uh, wound bed um, or wound uh, negative pressure therapy placement. So now an additional week, again, very, very healthy wound bed. This is still looking at that left hip, still a large wound, but again, uh, we have now very minimal undermining as seen here. Um, the remainder of the peri wound is quite healthy in appearance, uh, which again is another advantage. Uh, again, we're not planning on additional surgical intervention at this time. However, the benefit is that if the patient does end up needing more surgical intervention, this peri wound tissue remains intact. Again, you can see the cinnamon roll fashion or design of the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose. And again, that's continued uh, with negative pressure wound therapy. Um, once again, uh, a non-adherent layer being placed prior to foam placement and um, when you can bridge away, great, but if you have a large surface area, as long as that peri wound is protected, then that's certainly um, satisfactory as well. So now we can see at 12 weeks total, uh, we have not only a healthy wound bed and healthy peri wound, but you can see that area of the distal where the flap was uh, mobilized from, we now have no undermining present. And so all of that undermining um, now has been uh, dissolved. You can see a healthy wound bed. The wound margin and periphery is um, epithelializing. The wound size is smaller. Um, and this healthy wound bed is continuing to heal. Um, the benefit of this is I, I always like to say that wounds do not heal 
um, linearly, they heal exponentially. And the hardest part of that uh, wound um, progression curve is the beginning stages. And so once we get a wound where we have now reduced the depth and undermining, we have uh, epithelial tissue now that is active on the entire margin of the wound, then these wounds can heal in a more exponential fashion and not necessarily simply in a linear fashion. So with that, um, I'd like to um, just kind of describe my experience with the use of the um, oxidized regenerative cellulose with silver and negative pressure wound therapy. Um, the belief is that chronic wounds and the hyperinflammatory response can benefit from collagen products because it helps to control that um, uncontrolled hyperinflammatory response. And in my experience as a reconstructive surgeon, when I operate on those patients with chronic wounds, those wounds, even though we do an acute excision or acute debridement, many of those wounds still have the issue of this hyperinflammatory response. So if there's ever a, an ability or an opportunity to address that hyperinflammatory response postoperatively, there is a benefit. Um, the use of uh, these collagen products, specifically the oxid oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver with negative pressure therapy is now a new indication. Uh, and I think one that um, allows the synergy of the benefits of oxidized regenerated cellulose with silver, both from uh, con controlling the inflammatory response and the antimicrobial properties of silver, combined now with the benefits of negative pressure wound therapy, allow for a more exponential um, effect. What we've learned is that postoperatively, many patients are not necessary candidates for reoperation. Many of those patients will be uh, moved on with uh, negative pressure wound therapy as a candidate for wound therapy postoperatively after a dehiscence and or recurrent ulceration or wound. The addition now of the uh, oxidized regenerated cellulose, uh, specifically that with, with silver, um, and now with the use of negative pressure wound therapy, makes for a combination that I think gives us an alternative to reoperation in those patients who are not necessarily operative candidates. So, in my experience, my algorithm for a post-operative uh, failed flap or wound complication after my surgery, most commonly is wound bed preparation, perhaps excisional debridements outpatient, um, inpatient if necessary in the operating room. Um, but if the patient can avoid a, uh, another trip to the operating room, there is benefit. When I'm able to uh, proceed with outpatient therapy with excisional debridement in the um, uh, outpatient setting, perhaps enzymatic debridement, and then followed by um, negative pressure wound therapy for wound bed preparation, that is the ideal scenario. The addition now of collagen, specifically oxidized regenerated uh, cellulose with soap silver allows for a, an even better benefit to expedite that healing process and perhaps avoiding a secondary surgery. So with that, I would like to end here. And again, I thank you all for your attention and look forward to our next uh, meeting.